Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Friends, a few years ago, I made a New Year's resolution to read more. In fact, I wanted to read one book a month. Well, I ended up reading about 30 books that year. I could not even believe it. And maybe you want to read more this year. I would like to invite you to join us in reading my brand new book that released in the fall of 2020. It's called You Be You, Why Satisfaction and Success Are Closer Than You Think. This book dives into where success and satisfaction are found. I'll give you a clue. It's not yourself. It's not the world. It's Jesus. I am so eager for you to grab some friends and read this book with me and read this with them. I'd love for us to do this together. I always say together is better and so is this. If you wanna join us in our Read With Me group, we have a reading guide for you with questions for you to discuss and use along the way. We're gonna join together virtually at the end of the month to talk about our book club discussions. It's so fun. We've done this a couple times with over a thousand women reading along together and we would love for you to join us this time. If you've already read the book and you wanna read it with a friend, invite them and do it together. If you wanna do this with a couple of girlfriends, do it together and y'all can talk about the book along the way through text messages or Voxer or Marco Polo. Whatever you do, read with us this month. Text read with me to 33777 to join today. It's super easy. Don't do this while you're driving, but remember this, text read with me, all one word, no spaces, to 33777. Friends, today we have a great show for you. Ben Higgins joins me today. You may know Ben from the Bachelor franchise on ABC. He was on the 20th season of The Bachelor where he was actually The Bachelor. Before that, he had been on The Bachelorette. Today, Ben sits down and talks with me about a new book that he has coming out next month called Alone in Plain Sight, Searching for Connection When You're Seen But Not Known. And I think no matter what you've been through in life, you are going to connect with this book uh, in meaningful ways. Some of my favorite parts of the conversation today were when Ben talks with us about what some experiences in Honduras actually did for him and changed the rest of his life. He's now co-founder of Generosity Coffee, and they make wonderful coffee, and all their profits go back to support nonprofits. So enjoy the show today. I'm going to give you a warning. I did not ask many questions about The Bachelor because there's more to Ben Higgins than The Bachelor. We do talk about singleness at the end, and it's such an encouragement to all of you guys who are listening, who are single. And just to spoil the lead here, there's nothing wrong with you, and we believe in you, and we need you. There it is. So enjoy the show with Ben Higgins. Hey, Ben, welcome to the happy hour. I'm pumped to be here. Don't you love a happy hour? Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite things. It reminds me of college, moving in now to my adulthood, of just having a really happy hour, doing whatever it is. Whatever you might want to do on a happy hour. That's <laughs> I know. Right. That's exactly right. You know, it's funny because when I think of like happy hour, we're in the middle of, you know, we're the end of COVID. It's been all year. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I think that's one of the things I miss the most is just like meeting with girlfriends. It's like five o'clock. Let's meet someplace, hang out for like an hour. And it's been really hard with no happy hours. So I agree. Yeah, it's weird. It's pretty isolating. And so uh, trying to think of what I do for a happy hour now, it's probably like watching TV for an hour (laughs) of my day just to like let my mind go. But yeah, it's... uh, I'm happy to be on this happy hour. Well, I'm happy that you're on this happy hour as well. This is actually our first time meeting, so I'm happy to meet you. Congrats on your upcoming wedding. It's been pushed to 2021, but you and your girl are going to get married. We're going to get married, and we're pumped about it. It's a big deal. I'm so excited for you. Yeah, I'm super pumped. It's uh, She's the best. 
just the best human. I'm so excited to just have her as my partner. But yeah, it's been a weird year to get engaged. You know, we got engaged. I was on tour. So I was hosting this tour for Warner Brothers and we were in New York City. I was supposed to propose to her in New York City. That was my plan. And then it got canceled like a week before that. So I had to change all the plans. So we were engaged in the end of March. Started planning a wedding, realized, well, this is no fun. We have no clue if we're even going to be able to have a wedding. And so we pushed it to next year. And so time's ticking now. Good for you guys. Okay, I'll give you this, Ben. Next year, 2021, will be 20 years I've been married to my husband. And I am a big fan of marriage. It is so much fun. Good. I will tell you, it's work, but doesn't everything in life that's worth it take work? And so marriage is one of my favorite things in the world. So I can't wait for you and Jessica to experience that as well. Okay, well, welcome to the show because you have a book that comes out next month called Alone in Plain Sight, Searching for Connection When You're Seen But Not Known. I read this whole book and I just want to say congrats on writing this because after reading it, I realized you had to have had the biggest like vulnerability hangover after writing out this book. Well, I don't know. I, after I said that, I take it back because you've had some more vulnerable moments in your life uh, that have been public as well. So maybe you're a pro at this, but man, just congrats on putting this out there because your words are going to be such an encouragement to so many people who would look at Ben Higgins and be like, alone? No, not Ben. And then you lay it out there. Why did you even want to write this book? Well, I've never heard anybody call it a vulnerability hangover. Is that what that is? I mean, I've had that before. You, yeah. Like I remember I wrote, there's a chapter in my very first book. And the day before it came out, I was like, I don't know if I want this. It's way too late now. It's already like depressed. Yeah. But you just feel like I just kind of laid it all out. Yeah. Yeah. Why did I write it? Well, one, it's because it's who I am. And I was handed and gifted this platform for really no reason. And what I've learned through the whole thing is maybe the biggest benefit to the whole thing is that I just get to know people and people get to know me better. I get to meet a lot of new people. I get to be involved in really cool stories. I get to hear really cool stories, but I just, the whole platform thing has really enhanced my life. And so this book kind of came out of my journaling, out of my insecurities, many years of sitting with like these deep questions and these deep insecurities and feeling like, Hey, I was alone in this. And like, I need to get over it and work through it and get better because nobody else will understand me. And then I get to a place in my life where I'm able to be in front of millions of people and I start to get vulnerable. When I start to get vulnerable, then I start to have people reach out and say, I feel the same way. And and some of their stories are, all of their stories, I would say, like wreck me in a deeper way than my own even did at times. Like, you know, these stories that are even highlighted in the book, like these affected my life and my worldview. And so, yeah, I think because of that and because of the desire for people to get to know me, And because I knew that other people were feeling this way, I decided to write this book to try, if anything, if one person reads it and says, hey, I'm less alone. Like, I know that somebody else feels and struggles with the same things I do. And if I'm not alone, then it means that others aren't alone and I can start helping them feel not alone. And we're all in this together. And maybe we do have purpose. Maybe this thing is beautiful. Maybe we can make a difference. And then the answer to the one thing is, am I a pro at this? No. And I hope to never be. I hope vulnerability always hurts a bit. I've learned that through writing this book. Like I hope it always brings anxiety at an extent. I hope telling the things that have hurt me the most to the public will always feel a little awkward because I want to do that because I want to be able to show, like relate with those who are doing the same thing and maybe haven't had the opportunity to be in front of millions of people at one time. Right, so right. yes, this hurt. It's weird. It's still weird. 
You know, I remember my husband one time was leading a service at our church and we were doing communion. And he told this story about a very old tradition with communion. And they would kind of huddle up in groups of three or four and they would have the wine and the bread. And they would take a thing of wine, they each had their hand and they would take their bread and they would go around in the circle and they would say, I'm gonna butcher this a little bit, but they would say something like, here's how I'm not trusting God. And then here's how God's moving in my life. And they would each repeat it. And then everyone in the circle would go, me too, and then they would take communion. And that's what this is. It's you saying, here's what it is. And then so many people are gonna go, I understand that. Like I've walked that road before. And I think that's how people feel. You talk a lot in your book about feel, being connected. And I think that's how people begin to feel connected to each other. Ben, you had a moment on The Bachelorette when you were very vulnerable and you said you felt unlovable. Mm-hmm. And I know that that wasn't the first time you had felt that for sure, because I've read your book. But can you talk to us about how that feeling was something that you had walked through for a lot in your life? Because I think there are so many people that might feel that same way. Yeah. I mean, is there any worse feeling than feeling absolutely alone? Mm. Like really? And I know uh, here's the thing. I can kind of make this statement because of the book and the stuff. Like I haven't talked to one person yet that at some point in their life, they haven't felt desperately alone. Like no matter what their life looks like. And so I was walking into the bachelorette, which was when I was like 24, 25, kind of walked into it with very little confidence, not really knowing what I was getting into. And all of a sudden, like life kind of smacked me in the face. And for the first time in my life, I had a producer tell me, hey, I don't like you because I don't know you. And I lived my whole life growing up in a church, you know, saying the right thing, doing the right thing, trying to, to be the right thing so that people wouldn't ask me the question of who am I really? Like, what is like... Who are you to your core? There's this thing in the book, and it's good for this story, but when I was in college once, one of the people I trusted the most in my life had looked at me once in the car, and he goes, Ben, if you only knew my thoughts all the time, you would never like me. And I was like, that's interesting for you to say. Like, that took a lot for you to admit that I wouldn't like you if I actually knew you. And so then I went through the process of talking that through. Well, this has still resonated in my head. And what I learned is actually the, I think he was wrong. I think the more actually people get to know you, the more they like you because the more they can understand you. And unfortunately, I grew up in a place where I tried to cover that up until the moment I couldn't anymore. And so I did admit I felt unlovable. I had hid that and carried that with me for most of my life at that point, and still most of my life today, where I felt like nobody really knows me. Nobody understands me. I'm alone in this whole thing. I think I'm doing it the right way. I don't really know. feel pretty, a lot of shame all the time. And as long as I say and do the right thing, nobody's going to ask me enough questions for me to actually have to admit that. Well, finally, some producer said, I don't like you because I don't mm-hmm. know you. You don't let anybody know you. And when he said that, it opened up the door for me to ask why. And we spent four hours in a room. You see it on the show, like these little ITMs where it's like an interview. But that was four hours in a room of me, like head between my knees, admitting that like, I think if people actually knew me, they would never like me. And as mm-hmm. a result, I feel unlikable. I feel unlovable. I feel like the outsider looking in. Yeah. So yeah, then I admit it on the show. How are, I mean, you're 30 now, right? 31. 31. So, you know, you're looking at, that's five, six, seven years ago. What does that look like for you today? Like, how do you feel lovable today versus living in that I feel alone and unlovable? Or do you still? Yeah, there's still many moments, even with yeah. you know a wonderful fiance who supports, loves, cares about me in ways that I never knew I could be. It still comes up, you know, it comes up in like when we're having a disagreement and that has typically spurred from my insecurities, like me trying to like walk on, thin, you know, a thin mm-hmm. line, do the right thing, say the right thing so that she doesn't get mad at me when all along she just wants me to be honest with her. Yeah. So that, yes, that still comes. There is though something that is really interesting and I don't know if I could promise this, but as soon as I admitted it, 
and other people started to reach out, there was this like weight lifted. So it wasn't so much of a haunting internal mindset where it affected my everyday thought, my everyday motion. Now it was open. And then I could react according to how I knew people knew me and everybody knew me as the guy that felt unlovable. Well, that comes with his own issues. But as soon as I admitted it and became vulnerable, it didn't go away, but it was, it was a lot less of a weight than it originally was. I love that so much. You say in your book, I don't think that we live in the most divisive time in history, but rather in the most isolated and loneliest. And so if that's happening, you know, and I would agree with you as well, especially in the last year that we've had a 2020 with, you know, people have been isolated, not just emotionally, but now physically as well. How have you struggled through, or maybe you haven't through 2020 with that isolation and loneliest time of this year, knowing that you have this like trajectory of maybe tending to feel that way sometimes? How do you fight that? Yeah, definitely. Well, it is probably the most radical or one of the most radical statements that I make in the book because it came from a place of, I truly believe it. Yeah. We have great examples in U.S. history alone and global history, very divisive times. And yes, it feels like it now, right? And that's best seen in politics and religion and the things that are most transparent in our lives, the yelling, the screaming, the lack of understanding, those kind of things. Well, then we get into 2020 where a pandemic hits and we're forced to be alone. The benefit I had was I was able to talk to a few people during the creation of the book, Avery in particular, who's in the book. And he was a guy who has a terminal illness. Since I've met him, he spent months in the hospital. When I met him, he was spending a complete year in a bubble, like literally bubble boy, no contact with the outside world. So like talking to him about physical isolation is a good thing to do. What I've done to combat it though, is because of the lack of activities outside of these four walls I'm living in, it gives me more time to connect at a deeper level with those who are in my life or connect with my God above or try to uh, attempt to. So it's an investment more into the things that sometimes get pushed aside when life's spinning, you know, a million miles a minute. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, I need to tell you this, Ben. You start your book with one of my favorite stories of the entire Bible. And so I was like, I'm going to like this book because not many men either are going to start their book with John chapter four when Jesus meets the woman at the well. What do you find in common with this woman? Because I've taught on that chapter a thousand times and I love it so much. And I myself personally find so much in common with this woman. When you look at this story and you see this woman, what do you see in common with her? Well, she's all of us, right? I mean, I think that's the thing. It's interesting. And the Bible does some weird stuff when it comes to stories that are relatable, right? If you ever want to have a really good conversation, we'll talk about Judas, right? And, you know, the theology of Judas and like what happens to Judas because have we all betrayed? Mm. So that's interesting, right? So all these stories, especially the one at the well, starts becoming relatable to us. And we put ourselves in the position of, of her and we sit there and understand this woman who has been pushed aside from society, who's been beaten down. Every time she steps out of her house, she feels worse about herself. When she's in her house, she's probably like us contemplating all the things that people have said, all the labels that people have placed on her, how she's not welcome, loved, wanted, connected. And so she sits there. I'm imagining this, right? I, I think if it would be me, but I'm imagining her sitting there in her room feeling desperate, alone. And then she walks to the well one day, which is common, probably on her way there, not really talking to anybody and being pushed aside by everybody. She sits down at the well and somebody talks to her and it's Jesus. And she starts explaining herself with her labels that have been placed on her. She's kind of like me where, you know, in a different level, a lot more, but like all of a sudden she starts spewing this vulnerability in a lot of ways. Like, you know who I am. Like, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. And it almost is like she can't get past the labels that have been placed on her. She can't get past the shame that has been pushed on her from others to see who she really is. And I think that's the beautiful thing about the story is Jesus just looks at her and says, do you know who you are? Like, I imagine Jesus in that moment 
breaking down knowing that like one of his most beloved feels like they're just a label, just a category. And especially, I mean, for me, I've had the benefit of having labels placed on me that are pretty good. Like I'm just the bachelor. Well, that's not that bad. It gives me a lot of good things. Mm -hmm. Like that's fine. Can you imagine if I was called just the drunkard, Mm -hmm. just the, the person without a home, just the diseased, just the betrayer, just the doubter, like all the time, if that's how people knew me, if that's how people knew people listening, it's how they knew you. And mm-hmm. I just see myself in her. And then I see one of the most beautiful ways she responds is just telling her how valuable she is. And so, yeah, it comes in the chapter of the book where we talk about releasing the labels. And yeah, she's a strong woman who still walks to the well every day, even though she probably doesn't want to. I love that. And I, you know, my favorite part of that story is after she has this encounter with Jesus and then she goes back to her village or her people or wherever it was. And I agree. She probably felt scared and didn't want to go to the well. And she goes back and she's like, hey guys, I need to tell you about this man who knew all about me. And Mm -hmm. could this be the Messiah? And then it says, one of my favorite scriptures, it says, and many believed because of her testimony. And I think, man, isn't that cool that God lets us use our hard moments are things that are scary or difficult or even moments we wish we could take back. And he's like, don't worry, I'm gonna use those for good. I'm gonna come through and many people are gonna believe because of your testimony. I love it so much. Well, it shows too, there's an interesting thing that happens and it it happens with the best intentions at church. But typically when people preach on this story or teach the story, that at that moment when she goes back into town, the teacher always highlights the fact that don't forget this woman was you know, a prostitute. Like, don't forget that she was the least of these people, right? They always make sure that that label is still placed on her. Like, don't forget that she is still the least of these. But in fact, I think the beautiful part of this story is a twist where many believe because of her testimony. Like, it shows that she's more than what people even imagined she was and that Jesus used somebody that was unexpected, but not less than, not any lower than, but used somebody unexpected at the right time to change lives. And what I want to do is highlight the power and the purpose that this woman has. Like she had a mission. She had a purpose. She has value. Even when she doubted herself, she's not a label. She's valuable. And Jesus knew that. And now others knew that. And so I always think it's interesting that people still emphasize that she was less than those, viewed less than those. Because in my eyes, she wasn't. She was shining. She was game-changing. She was life-changing. That was a Super Bowl moment. She won. I love it so much. It's like when, you know, we're recording this, you know, in December, obviously before January. And it's like, I think about the shepherds and, mm. you know, talking about the Christmas story and like, man, God shows up and he's like the very first people who tell us about Jesus, the very first people are shepherds. The ones that the community was like, eh, they're not even that important. Yeah. Isn't that funny how God uses the meek, the sad, the impoverished? I love that it. I love it. feels interesting. You know, it makes me want to ask you about this. And I know you have a, a great organization, Generous mm-hmm. Coffee, that you've co-founded. And I know from just from reading your book that traveling to Honduras many times had played a big role in your life. And so yeah. I want to hear from you, like, how did you go from, I mean, obviously I read your book, but tell the people a little bit. How did you go from just, I went to Honduras on a mission trip with my church and now I'm starting a coffee company? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'll tell the quick version. And then you can get the book, guys, and read the whole thing. You can read the whole thing. So I was young. I was 15. Grew up in a really great town called Warsaw, Indiana. They have a lot of good things going for them. They orthopedic capital of the world. So everybody in that town has a little bit of money. There's not a lot of crime. Your ring doorbell is not sending a lot to you. And my parents' church went to Honduras and they brought us all, all of my buddies and I, when we were young, like 15, 14 and 15. And 
we show up to Honduras and, you know, we kind of have this like hero mentality. We're wearing the same matching color mission shirts. And I died laughing when I read that in your book, because every time I go through like Miami or Dallas, uh, yeah. I always can find them. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're like high, like bright pink. Yes. Like they're going to get lost. They're like 50 year old <laughs> men and women. And it's like, you're going to get lost. No, you're not going to get lost. No, you're, you're not. We have the t-shirt for you. Yep. You're good. Yeah. So you show up, you have this hero mentality. You, you show up to this country, everybody's super scared. You've gone through so much protocol and so much stuff before you went. And so like you kind of go down with this idea that like we're going to serve these people and you get there and you start to see not slowly, pretty quickly that the world that you're comfortable with is not the world that most are used to. And you start to see homes built out of, you know, sticks and you start to see people drinking water that's brown and it's next to where their sewage is running off. You start to see kids running around all day, not having any access to school or dying from chicken pox. And you start to see this as a 15-year-old kid and you start to question God at the deepest of levels. Like there is no God here. Like there is no God present. I don't see it. How can this God claim to even love us? When we talk about that God will provide, what are we talking about? Where is he here? Yeah. where, Where is he here? There's nothing that I'm seeing. And I'm 15, so I'm not smart enough to process these thoughts. And I sat in these thoughts for three years. And one of my biggest issues at that time was what we happened was we went down two years in a row. But the first year we passed out these food boxes to these communities and gave them clothes and then left. And that was fine. It felt okay. It was like, oh, fine. It's a food box. It'll last you 30 days and eh, it works. The next year we went back and people were just as hungry, just as thirsty, if not more. We did the same thing and people were fighting over these boxes. But now I had a perspective of, I know what these people like before. They're no different now. Right. What are we doing to help? And this whole idea of service, like we would go back and be celebrated mm-hmm. for going to Honduras, like celebrated. Like you'd bring the slideshow and all the things. Oh, yes. Brilliant stuff. Like you guys are awesome. Mm-hmm. You're warriors. You're doing great stuff. And you start to feel that way. Well, I guess my doubts about God and my questions about what was going on didn't cause me to feel too great about myself. Mm. I think that was actually a benefit. Yeah. So three years later, my buddy calls me and he says, hey, I have this idea. You're super frustrated with the way that these mission trips worked. What if instead of just giving these things to people and leaving, what if we actually partnered with him? Like, what if we actually invested our lives with him? And the model is this. So Humanity Hope United was formed. That's the nonprofit. Humanity Hope United builds leadership teams into each community. We listen to them and, and they tell us what they need, what they want and what they dream of. If that's jobs for women, if that's clean water, if that's healthcare, education. And then we just help here back in the States, and we have staff on the ground, help build strategy to help them get there. So we're just partners with them. What what happens is it takes away the level of you're going down to serve these people. And it brings in the idea of kinship, meeting with them, coming into community with them, like building community with them. And that, that's special. When you humble yourself enough to build kinship with people who you originally thought you were going to serve or that you could help, it's a really interesting dynamic that changes because you start to see them as human. Mm. And you start to invest into their pain with them. You also celebrate their joys and, and mourn with them as well. So Humanity Hope United was formed. Fast forward a little bit, I become the bachelor. Fundraising for Humanity Hope United skyrocketed. Now we have the bachelor. It did skyrocket. Uh, oh, it, it was wild. When I went on the bachelor and was able to talk about Humanity Hope United publicly, people donated in large ways. It was incredible. But we realized that I wasn't going to be the bachelor forever, nor did I want to be. And I don't really have a talent to keep me you know, relevant for too long. So I don't think I can keep the fundraising up. So my buddies and I sat down, we brainstormed, we came up with an idea where we could start a for-profit company 
And because of the benefits that I have for my podcast and some of the other stuff, I could run this company without a salary. We could sell products, mostly coffee, because that's a long story too, but we just mm-hmm. want to do coffee. And then donate 100% of our profits to nonprofits and social causes that are fighting human-facing injustice around the world. And so that's the idea. We're three and a half years in. Our team's growing. God gave us a new CEO. I've recently stepped down as a CEO. I'm still a president. I'm still active. But he gave us a CEO who was in a place in his life financially at 39 that he could work for free. And he had great experience running pretty big companies. And so he stepped in to to do this passion project with us. And now we just sell a bunch of coffee and t-shirts and mugs and other stuff that are environmentally friendly and socially responsible and everything that every person out there wants to check off. Exactly. And then we donate to profits. and To different nonprofits or just to that one particular with your buddies? No, Humane and Hope United is our main beneficiary. So every year okay. we make sure to donate to them. But like for the holidays... We did a partnership with the Prison Fellowship, and they do the Angel Tree program where they give a Christmas to kids whose parents are incarcerated. Or mm-hmm. we invest into sex trafficking to try to alleviate men and women who have been brought into the sex trafficking world and help them become just healthy again, mm-hmm. to see themselves the way they deserve to see themselves. So yes, other nonprofits as well. Every year that we probably work with 20-ish somehow, if it's monetary or material donations. Okay. And there's no coffee shop. Am I right? It's all online. Well, we have two. Okay. Both in Denver, one in Golden, I guess, Colorado. The other one in Denver, we just closed it down due to COVID. It's no longer functioning. I'm sorry. Yeah, it sucks. But we did have two. Now we only have one, I guess. Okay. But mostly online. I mean, yeah. our most of our business is subscription-based. So people who say, hey, I like your coffee. Your coffee's great. It is the best coffee in the world. You can. It's specialty grade. So it's like graded the highest. Uh-huh. So it's good coffee. But we don't want to keep ordering it. So we're just going to subscription and it just shows up to your door. So that's our biggest... That's like the biggest. easiest thing in the world. I mean, I'm like, if something like can show up so. to my door and it goes to a good cause, I'm in to drink my coffee. That's I awesome. I would like to think so. Yeah. And that's, that helps us because as we grow the business, our donations can increase. Yeah. We try to, you know, people have heard me talk about it before and they ask, well, like 100% of profits is a little ambiguous. What do you mean? We try to keep it anywhere between 10 and 15% of revenue that yeah. we'll donate based on you know cost of goods. And we do right. have some paid employees, not myself or the other leader. So yeah, 10 yeah. to 15% of revenue you can trust will go on. I love it. Love it. Okay. I want to ask you another question that I'm curious of, and I know that probably the listeners are as well. I know that you grew up in a great home, Christian family, all the things like that. Mm-hmm. But I know that just as being a young adult, you know, you're starting to come into your own faith. And I mean, it sounds like if you were talking with your buddies about this, you know, in your early 20s, I'm just like, your head was way tied better on your shoulders than mine was in my early 20s. But what was like... I don't know if you can promise that. (laughs) (laughs) You gave me a look like, I don't know about that. (laughs) But I do want to know, like, what was it like? I've been on, you know, a reality TV show and a Christian. You know, I think that's so intriguing for a lot of us who are, we want to be like strong in our faith, but we're also very relevant. And I mean, we're not living in a bubble here, but how was that for you? And maybe even both of your times that you spent in the public eye that way? Selfishly, it was really great because it gave me kind of a lane to walk down. So like, like this is who you were, this is who I am, right? Like, I don't know what else is going on here. I was also going through like an identity crisis. You got to think like during that show is when the producer goes, I don't like you because I don't know you. And I'm trying to figure out who I even am at that point. I don't really this know. This is the worst time to figure out. This yeah. is the worst kind of thing for you. I feel so sorry for you, Ben. Yeah, I'm breaking down <laughs> yeah. and have cameras around and nobody can figure out why. But I guess I was at a place in my life where I still had a ton of questions. I still have a ton of questions. I do believe in Jesus. And 
if you ask me, okay, like, what do you mean by that? What I'd say is I believe in Jesus and I believe that we should love people and love God. Outside of that, there's a lot of questions that I have. And I've seen that work and I see that being true. And I see that at its basic and most complex levels, being a good solution for a lot of the issues we have, but also being a really good encouragement to all of us as we walk through this life together. And so during the show, that's about what I stuck to. I don't want to get into anything else. Like I don't want to on the show argue about what denomination is greatest or what salvation actually means, or if water is really turned into wine or not. I don't really care about that. What I cared about was that people would know that I believe in a God who loves and loves all and loves well. And that's what motivates my decisions. Now, granted along the way, like morally, there's decisions during that show that are incredibly difficult. Like, I don't, you know, and and like, you could tell me the right or wrong thing. And I I don't even know if I'd agree with you there. I tried to do my best. I tried to take one step at a time. I tried not to hurt Jesus's message. Like, that's the one thing I didn't want to do. I didn't Mm want to go off the show and feel like I've hurt people who are seeking after a God who loves them. But if I messed up myself and messed up my own story, I guess I was okay with that. Yeah. You were like, I'm not the representative for everybody that's a Christian for America on this show. And I don't claim to be. I don't want to argue on the basis of that. What I want to do is let everybody know that I'm trying. Let everybody know that I do believe in Jesus. And when I say that, what it means, but know that, and hopefully not like a scapegoating, but like know that I'm human and like this whole thing's weird. I think it's right. And I'm probably not going to do it well, but like at the core of it, I just didn't want to make anybody go, Hey, like what I didn't want to do is push anybody farther away from their belief because of my time. Yeah, that's so good. I remember when I was talking to Catherine Lowe years ago, she was saying how that was one of the first times when she was on the show that she'd actually been exposed to Christians. Like there were women on that show having Bible studies. And I guess my naivety, I was just like, really? And she's like, yes. She said how much they hung out that wasn't on air. There was so much and there were a handful of girls and they like were the one of the first ones to expose her to like a Bible and things. I was so impressed. It does happen. I would also in reverse... It's one of the first times I've, other than college, college though, like, I don't, I don't know, I was, we were all doing our own thing, that like, I was exposed and living with people who adamantly disagreed with my belief and knew more about my belief than I even did. Like knew about more about the tradition. That's eye-opening too. Yeah. So like, typically when you grow up in an evangelical household in the church, the excuse for people not believing is they haven't heard, right? They just don't know. Yeah. What happens when you run into somebody that really has heard, that really knows, that knows more than you do about it, and they've made a intellectual and emotional decision based on what they know about church history and about what they know of what you believe. That gets weird. That'll rock you. That will rock you. And that was happening. And so you're in this like, you're in this place of being curious, learning a ton, having your identity kind of molded. And then knowing that all this was going to air in front of millions of people and not knowing how to figure it out. This sounds like my worst nightmare, Ben. I just (laughs) need to let you know. Don't feel bad for me. It's been a blast. I know, right? It's been great. I'm writing a book. I'm talking to you because of it. I don't think you and I are talking unless Mm -hmm. that happened. Yeah. But it is weird and it's not comfortable. Yeah. But I do think, I mean, I think I saw you say this somewhere, like even like you don't meet Jessica, you know, your future wife without these experiences. And you probably don't even know who you are as much because of these experiences. And who knows, like you said, you raised a crap load of money, you know, because you were the bachelor. And so those are all great things. It's weird though. I did a speaking tour, I think it's been two years ago now. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to talk about. 
And uh, one of the things that came to mind, this was, I guess it must have been two and a half years, is right before Jess. And the tour kind of lasted. And what I ended up speaking about was how all these little things in our life, if I track back them, how they've led to this point where I'm standing in that place today. Like I remember sitting in that Applebee's talking to my buddy about working at my current job forever. And he goes, you got to get out of this town. And so I was like, where'd I go? And my boss had told me about her brother having a place in Denver. And I applied and got the job because of that Applebee's conversation, that job that led me to get signed up for the show based because the marketing director found it interesting. The show led me to all this stuff, which led me to Jess. Like, it's just interesting if we look back on life at all the small little things that can like almost like make you anxious at every given moment something's happening that will have a trickle effect long term and so it just makes i guess the lesson is to be more present in those moments yeah and you talk about that in a handful of different ways in your books one of the ones that was very profound to me was when you were having a conversation with your mom and you're talking about like cherishing all those days and you're having a conversation with your mom and you can correct me if i'm wrong i believe it was when your dad was in the hospital or something and you're asking your mom about marriage and your mom said something, and now I feel like I'm butchering it from my memory, something about like she was preparing for your dad's death, mm-hmm. which made her thankful for every single day. Yeah. And it's almost like that. Like you're like every single day, you don't know where it's going, but it matters for something. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there's many parts in the book that death is brought up. Death is still something that I'm super anxious about. It's a fear of mine. I readily admit it. Even being a Christian, I, I don't get it. Yeah. And so... I talk about that in the book, but there's a few examples that I really have great opportunity to speak with people who are in the know on it, right? One is Annie, which is in the early chapters. Annie's in her young 20s or early 20s. She's diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. She's had two lung transplants. She's She needs a third. The doctor's decline her because it's just too risky. And she only has a few weeks left when I talk to her. Like she knows she's dying. There's no questions. They've stopped treatment. Like she knows she's dying. And so the lessons that she teaches me in her words on like, when you know you're dying, what do you want to share? What do you want life to be about? Like, how do you want people to remember you? Like all of those things that we want to ask and and all the things that we want to ask even ourselves, she's able to help answer. That's a big part of the book for me. And then my mom, you know, my dad has been sick multiple times in his life. And when I was a junior in high school, we definitely thought he was gone. And that was a second time. The one other time was before I was born. That was a second time she kind of grieved his death, believed he was dying. And so her lesson is interesting because he's still alive and he's healthier than ever now. He's full of all this metal and bionics, but he's, <laughs> he's, he's never, alive. He's, everything's working great. <laughs> yeah, he's never going to die now. Yeah. You know, but she talks about how she did grieve his death. Like she knows she did. And she started to plan a future without him, but also how much she was going to miss him. And so now that she still has him, like what does life look like when mm-hmm. miracles happen and somebody survives and somebody's still around? Like, do you just push aside and say, hey, thank you for that you're still here? Or is there an emotional and like reaction to that, that you start to invest every day in a different way? You start to see every day in a different way that you have time left. And so I wonder, based on that thought, like if we all started to grieve our own deaths, like what would it mean for us to keep living? Like if we all actually came to terms with maybe the only things we have in common are the fact that we're all going to suffer and that we all experience pain because we can't be promised joy all the time. We can't right. even be promised moments of it. I've seen people who could argue that they've never felt joy. Mm. We can't all experience pain and suffering. We can also all agree that we're all going to die. When we actually come to terms with that, what does that mean for the life that we're living? I actually think that could be beautiful. Yeah, totally beautiful. Really hard, but really beautiful. Yeah. What's that Tim McGraw song? Look, now I'm on a rabbit trail here. What is, he talks about like- Live like we're dying? There it is. Yeah. I'd ride a bull. 
Tim's onto something. Exactly. Exactly. I am not riding a bull, even if I find out that I'm dying. Just FYI, it's not on my list. There's a lot more things, but that's not one of them. Uh Yeah. Yeah. Ben, I want to ask you one more question before we go, because I would be sad if I didn't, because you talk about something that I know a lot of my listeners are always asking me to talk about, which is singleness. Mm -hmm. And you talk about how so many times people, and I'll go out on a limb and say people in the church, I don't know if you said that, it's my words, not yours, maybe, how people in the church can treat singleness like a disease. Like, there is something wrong with you. And as a man who's lived 31 years single, what is your encouragement to all of our friends who are listening? And they are single. And they sometimes may have felt like, people look at me like I have a disease and I'm just out here living my life to the best. You know, the one thing I'm not concerned about with the book is I'm fairly critical of the church and how we've treated our congregations and our people throughout the book. Now, I think there's a lot of great things about the church. I love Um, the church. Yes, me too. But yes, we have some work to do. I love the church, and I believe it's a great thing when done well. And I believe a lot of people are trying to do it well. But when you read a book, it's easier to really kind of critique than it is to just highlight all the great things. Right. And I think hopefully the critiques are necessary and good and will help all of us understand a little bit more, but also see that it's a good thing. Well, I do think there's a few things like the purity movement with the best of intentions came through the church, but it also left a lot of people emotionally damaged because they're wondering what does life look like with all, when all these things that were promised me aren't promised. I've stayed a virgin my whole life. I've never dated. I've never put myself out there to a guy or to a girl. And now I'm 35 years old and single and not knowing how to talk to anybody and not knowing how to flirt and feeling alone and left out. And now I'm questioning God, I'm questioning everything. It's hard Very to process. Hard. Yep. And I know a lot of people who have gone through that. It's my generation. That's my upbringing. And so what I've seen is that this singleness thing, even when I like, if you go to church and you're single, everybody asks you, are you dating anybody? (laughs) Right. If you say no, then they say, why not? And you're Uh like, "Uh, I don't know. You tell me. (laughs) Maybe I don't want to. And what happened at like 28 before Jess in between my last relationship was I was reading through Paul and Paul talks about the benefits of being single. He talks about it in a way that, that doesn't talk about being single as anything more than beautiful, that allows you opportunities and endless opportunities and freedoms and things that he says, the things that he could never do if he was married, he can do because he's single. And then I start to question, like, why is the church so adamant that people can't be single? That left me in a place where I got very comfortable being single on my own. Like, I was very good about the idea that I was maybe never going to have a relationship. Now, I didn't want that. That wasn't my hope, but I had to be okay with that. Were you content with it? You found like contentment in it? I found contentment with it. I was okay with it. But I realized the path to getting to a place of contentment uh, was hard and it was very lonely again. Again, that's why it's called Alone in Plain Sight. Every chapter has a story of a group of people or maybe all of us that have felt alone at some point in time. That the path to getting to content was very lonely. It was very scary. It made you question yourself and what's wrong with you and what you've done wrong and, and why people have lied to you. And I just, I guess, wanted the singles out there to have a chapter that wasn't about dating or how to fix the fact that they haven't found somebody. What I want to tell people is that if you're single, hey, it's good. Like, it's great. Now, if you don't want to be single forever, like, I hope that's not the case. Like, I hope it's not the case. But if it is, you still have breath. You still have value. You still have purpose. I can learn a lot from you. In fact, you're going to be able to do a lot more things than I'm going to be able to do because I'm in a relationship. Now, that might not be the way you want to see your future play out, but what we all have to understand is that those people have tremendous value in our society, tremendous value inside the church, a tremendous different understanding of life and a different understanding of themselves. And I just want the singles out there to read this chapter. And I talk to a few people and they give some advice on how to be single and do it well and all that stuff. But what I want people to leave that chapter as I want everybody to leave every chapter with is feeling less alone, feeling more seen, more heard, 
and of a place of value and respect and admiration and not that singleness is a sickness or a disease need to be healed. Amen. Amen. That's it. That's what. I love it so much. And I see like, you know, I, I think when you look back on like the 80s and the whole like focus on family in the church and we got to protect the family. And there are some great things with that. But I think what it did was also create this idea that family, this nuclear family, husband, wife, and kids was like the best thing in the church. And it left a lot of our friends going, wait, I have a lot of value. And now I think we're seeing a change, like conversations like we're having today and what you're writing and people going, you have equal value, like as much value. We need you in our community, our churches and our lives so much more. So thanks for that encouragement. Okay, Ben, I always ask people at the end, what are you loving? And so you told me earlier, a happy hour would be like a good TV show. What are you watching these days? Yellowstone. <gasps> Us too. So good. I love Kevin Costner. He's definitely somebody that I have a crush on. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, the guy's a stud. He is. So Yellowstone is at the top of my watch list. Hey, I went to see his new movie just the yeah. other day. I went all by myself in the middle of the day. Lovely. It is so good. I need to watch it then. Get him home, bring him home, let him go. Something like, I can't remember like that, but there's like three movies that released this year. That's one of them. So yeah. And then I just finished a series that is not very well known. It's recommended by my buddy after writing the book. He told me, hey, I think you might like this series called Wayne. Wayne's pretty intense. So if you get squeamish or if you don't like foul language, I don't recommend it. But Wayne is about a kid who has a really hard upbringing, who feels disconnected from everybody, who reacts to that disconnection. And it tells his story and it is awesome. Would you watch it on a streaming service? On Amazon Prime. Yeah. Okay. It's well worth it if you can deal with the stuff in it, which I think is great because I think it's an accurate picture. I had a buddy, just a little side note, I had a buddy, my best friend in high school died of a drug overdose. He's our junior year of college. And his upbringing was very similar to this kid's. So when they show this stuff, you know, nice little non-complex families will go, oh, that's too much for me. But if you watch and go, no, no, this is truth. Like this is what's happening. Changes your perspective and it makes you appreciate a little bit more. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Ben, thanks for joining us on this happy hour today. Excited to talk to you about your new book and the projects and congrats on your upcoming marriage. Hey, Jamie, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Probably a top three favorite interview. And I I didn't expect, I didn't know I was in the interview spirit today, but I'm glad we talked. It was awesome. Well, I'm glad even if you weren't in the interview spirit that it came around. So thanks for coming on the happy hour. It was great. Thanks. Friends, thank you for listening today. And remember, if you want to be a part of our marriage challenge, text the word marriage to 55444 and we're going to send you all the information via email. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The show notes for the show are written by Abby Castell. The music for the show is created by Matt Graham. The whole thing's organized by Lindsay Sweeney. I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. Thank you for joining us. We will see you back here next week. You guys, in January of 2024, I made a commitment to myself. I wanted to get stronger, which meant I needed to get in the gym, which means I needed to move my body in different ways. You guys know I love to walk. Well, it's spring, and spring is the best time for us to start a new workout routine. It's our yearly collective warm-up, and Peloton is here for everyone's yearly warm-up. This is the best time to get into a good rhythm, to tap into your power, and build towards your summer you. 
I love my Peloton. It accommodates to my schedule with a variety of class links to choose from. I can choose a 30-minute class. I can choose a 45-minute class. If you only have five minutes, there's literally a class to get you moving your body in five minutes. Peloton has a range of class types fit for every goal and every mood. There are classes if you want to hear country music, if you want to hear uh, rock, if you want to go back to the 80s. If you can't run, take a walking class. Need some grounding? Try yoga. If you want to level up, go for their Pilates or HIIT workouts. Here's what I love is that you can move at your own pace. And that is what I'm learning that my body needs right now. It needs to move at its own pace. Peloton makes the process easier with personalized recommendations and guided programs that take all the guesswork out of working out. You guys, we think about so many things during the day. Let's take the guesswork out. Let's jump right in and let's keep our fitness journey fresh every single day. Peloton has everything you need to get you where you're going. Whether you prefer to run outdoors, row or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. I personally love a good 45-minute hip-hop class. It gets me moving. It gets me excited. It's my favorite genre of music, just ask my kids. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com.